preparing uh, this sermon, I, I came across a few excellent statements by the, uh, the one that we sometimes call the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. He said this, Where, beloved, can we find richer instruction than at the table of our Lord? He who understands the mystery of the incarnation and of substitution is a master in scriptural theology. There is more teaching in the Savior's body and the Savior's blood than in all the world besides. In another place, Spurgeon takes on the view of the Catholic Eucharist when he says this. He says, the priest who celebrates Mass tells us that he believes in the real presence but we, we reply, nay, you believe in uh, knowing Christ after the flesh. And in that sense, the only real presence is in heaven. But we firmly believe in the real presence of Christ, which is spiritual and yet certain. I believe in the true and real presence of Jesus with his people. Such presence has been real to my spirit. Lord Jesus, thou thyself hast visited me. As surely as the Lord Jesus came, really, as to his flesh to Bethlehem and Calvary, so surely does he come really by his Spirit to his people in the hours of their communion with him. Consider this simple statement. I can bear my own witness that many and many a Sabbath, when I have found but little food for my soul elsewhere, I have found it at the communion table. Spurgeon continues, he says, at this table, Jesus feeds us with his body and his blood. His corporal presence we have not, but his real spiritual presence we perceive. We are like the disciples when none of them durst ask him, who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? He is come. He looketh forth at these windows, I mean this bread and wine, showing himself through the lattices of his instructive and endearing ordinance. Spurgeon had a lot to say about the Lord's Supper, and I really like this next quote, and I think you'll see why. He said this, Shame on the Christian church that she put it off to once a month and mar the first day of the week by depriving it of its glory in the meeting together for fellowship and breaking of bread and showing forth the death of Christ till he comes. They who once know the sweetness of each Lord's day celebrating his supper will not be content, I am sure, to put it off to less frequent seasons. Beloved, when the Holy Ghost is with us, ordinances are wells to the Christian, wells of comfort and of near communion. Spurgeon had a way with words that few other preachers have had. I'm going to give you another quote. He says this. I really like this one. Never mind that bread and wine, unless you can use them as folks often use their spectacles, what do they use them for? To look at? No, to look through them. So use the bread and wine as a pair of spectacles. Look through them and do not be satisfied until you can say, Yes, yes, I can see the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And then probably what is, I think, his best statement about the Lord's Supper is this. 
I think the moments that we are nearest to heaven are those that we spend at the Lord's table. I think the moment that we are nearest to heaven are those that we spend at the Lord's table. Think of the promise of Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Just listen to this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The Apostle John gives us a glimpse of the Lord's table in heaven when we read this from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 10. John writes, Then I heard what what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the prophecy. Now consider all of that. Bunch of bunch of Spurgeon quotes, a couple of longish passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. With all of those things in mind, consider how how much of the American church views the Lord's Supper. Typically, the best way to describe it would be casual, right? It's not hard to find churches that have say, five-gallon buckets of individually wrapped communion packets to grab on your way in or, or out. drive through communion has become a thing. Did you know that? During the pandemic, churches promoted at-home-by-yourself communion, which makes no sense at all. And once those things have started, it's hard to stop them. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is is doing for the church of Corinth as he confronts and and corrects their conduct at the Lord's Supper. So let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole section, verses 17 to 34. And we're going to be looking this morning at the tradition received, which is verses 23 to 26. Let me read the whole passage again. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 17, says this. 
Paul writes to the church at Corinth, but in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's just stop and pray. Lord, I pray that you would feed us from your word today. I pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would understand what you are are saying to us. I pray that we would have discernment. I pray, Lord, that you would give us um, the nourishment that we need, that our faith might be strengthened as as we keep our eyes on our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. So here's one thing I want you to remember and take to heart. When we participate in the Lord's Supper by by faith in the finished work of Christ, we're able to see this this portion of our worship or this element of our worship as a fellowship with Christ and with his church in which Christ strengthens us and nourishes us by faith. And so last week as we looked at the previous passage, verses 17 to 22, we saw the divisions in the church and how Paul confronts them. We also saw that, that coming to the table each Lord's Day was a, a regular pattern for the church until the Middle Ages and that it was the Reformation era churches that brought the practice back to the table with frequency. Calvin himself said that we should come to the table at least once a week. So we see this morning that Paul, in the the midst of his instructions and and rebukes to this church that was was essentially internally split, Uh, the Corinthian church was a split church that still met in the same building, essentially, in the same house, in the same place. As Paul is giving them this instruction, he tells them very simply, what it is that brings Christians together. And just to give you a hint, it's not really something that we do. 
that brings Christians together. Before we go any further, I I, want to stop and say this. Um, It's hard, and I hope that you understand this, it's hard to it's been hard to preach from 1 Corinthians to you because 1 Corinthians is a church that's filled with factions and divisions and splits and needing all kinds of correction that you don't need. <laughs> you don't need this kind of correction and rebuke that the Corinthians are getting. But we do need to be careful, right? The Lord has assembled this church The Lord has brought all of us together as this body of believers. And for many of you, um, I know your histories with churches. We've talked about it. I know that we come from many different backgrounds and many different church experiences, many of which did not end well. And so many in this room, as a part of Logansville Church, have experienced in the past the divisions and the factions that Paul has been writing about all through this letter. And yet in our time together over these last years, I've seen in Logansville Church a desire to, as Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 4, I've seen in you a desire to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I commend you for that, seriously. Makes it a joy to serve this church and to come to the Lord's table together every week. But I would also caution each of us to not let our guard down, especially this year, as we transition to a new building, a new name, and, and then we sell this building, Lord willing, be careful. Be careful to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in, in many ways, the church of Corinth was much different from us. But it's important to remember that Paul's purpose in in writing this was for correction. And he doesn't include this tradition of the Lord's Supper in order to explain the theology of the Lord's Supper. He's not providing, in these verses that we're looking at today, just in these few verses, he's not providing some new teaching that they didn't know or even correcting some of their faulty theology. See, when it comes to the the doctrine of the theology of the supper, he's already asked them, back in chapter 10, a couple of rhetorical questions. Remember? Remember? He said, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And he expects them, he expects the church to agree with him in their answer. And yet this church was so much like, in many ways, like the scribes and Pharisees who approached Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus' response, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. And the scribes and Pharisees agreed with him. 
even if they didn't practice the kind of love that the law teaches. This morning in Sunday school, Ben mentioned from Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8, which says this, The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. They knew the law. The priests knew the law. They knew it inside and out better than we know the Old Testament, that's for sure. And yet they did not live by it. They didn't handle the law. They did not know the Lord like the scribes and Pharisees. This is what is happening with the people of Corinth. They knew and understood the truth, but they didn't live like it. Jesus' religious opponents, they, they believed right things about the Lord, but like these Corinthians, they acted in ways that were contrary to the teaching. And so Paul cites this here in these verses as a way to to authoritatively contrast what Jesus did at the Last Supper with what they're doing at their suppers. See, as he corrects them, he roots his correction in the authority of Christ himself as the source of this Christian tradition. Let's look at the source. Verse 23 again. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. Now the words received and delivered to you, or some versions might say passed on, are technical Jewish terms for the the handing down of traditions from one generation to the next. That's exactly what Paul is doing here, or at least that's what he's reminding them here, that he's handed this down to them when he was there ministering to them. I received it from the Lord, and I am delivering it to you. This is the tradition to be passed on. This kind of language, as he says this, it means a couple of things. First, it means that the tradition, Jesus says this himself, or Paul says this about Jesus, the the tradition finds its source in Christ himself. Why is that important? Why would it be important that this tradition finds its source in Christ? Because churches and denominations have all kinds of traditions that they hold to. Some of them might be good and right, yet they don't rise to the level of coming from the authority of Christ. For example, we meet as a church mid-mornings, on Sunday. We believe that that is right and good. We believe that Sunday is the Lord's day, that it is what we might call the Christian Sabbath, and that mid-morning is a good time to meet. It's not, and this isn't only our tradition, right? We understand this. This is a tradition of many churches for as long as we can remember. Churches have met mid-morning on the Lord's day. But for the first church in Jerusalem, Sunday was a, was a work day. And so they met either early in the morning before dawn, or they met in the evening after work, where they would share an evening meal together, where they would pray, 
where the apostles would teach, and, and until, until persecution drove them away from, uh, from the temple and, and from uh, Jerusalem itself, the Jewish Christians would often still go to the temple on the Sabbath, on Saturday. In other words, the Bible does not tell us, Jesus did not establish a time in which the church ought to meet on the Lord's day, right? It's just our tradition. It's a good tradition. But the tradition of the Lord's Supper was handed down from Jesus himself. This gives it an authority other traditions do not have. In fact, we don't usually refer to it as a tradition, right? Maybe you're even a little bit uncomfortable that I've called it a tradition. Because sometimes we think of traditions negatively, especially when it comes to religion. We usually refer to it as an ordinance. It's a command to be obeyed. This brings us really to the second important reason that the language of received and delivered to you is important, and that is that this tradition is to be followed in all of Christ's churches. This wasn't just simply for the Corinthians. This is for all of Christ's churches. So fast forward to the late 1600s when the confession Uh, that the Baptists in London put together, says this, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. They are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, and are to be continued in his church to the end of the age. All churches are to uh, practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, communion. These are commands of Christ to be obeyed. We believe it is up to the church officers to administer the the bread and the cup, and it's up to the church members to obediently and regularly eat and drink. And, And to fail to do so is a sin against Christ. That doesn't mean if you miss a Sunday, you got to make it up. I'm not creating a law where there isn't a law, but regularly skipping the Lord's Supper is a sin against Christ. And for a church that does not regularly, whatever the pattern is, whether it's once a month or every week, whatever the pattern is, a church that doesn't regularly come to the Lord's table is sinning as well. Now, as we read this in English, um, we might miss that the word, the word delivered there in verse 23 and the word betrayed near the end of the verse, those are actually the exact same Greek word, delivered and betrayed. So, so think, of, think of the term handed over, right? That could be read either, either positively or negatively, right? We can hand over the meal. You can hand over the plate of hamburgers, I don't know, right? Or you can hand someone over to the authorities. That's the idea here. Um, but of course, when we read this, on, uh, let me read it again. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. So when we read that, and especially when we get to that word betrayed, we immediately think of Jesus' betrayal by Judas. And that's, that's appropriate, especially within the context uh, uh, that, of all that has been happening in the Corinthian church. Right? There's, there's a faction in the group of 12. But it's also bigger than just Judas. 
It's bigger than just simply his betrayal. Because this same verb for betray is used repeatedly in the Gospels in connection with Jesus' betrayal unto death. So, for example, Jesus himself predicts or prophesies in Luke chapter 18, verse 32. Jesus says this of himself. He says, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Jesus will be delivered over. He will be handed over. He will be betrayed. And so we consider that this, this deliverance, this handing over for crucifixion, that was already in motion when Christ delivered the tradition of the supper to the twelve. If you remember the setting, especially from John uh, chapter 13, Judas has already left. He said, what you do, do quickly. It's all in motion for him to be handed over. But we also remember that this was all a part of the covenant of redemption, as we sometimes call this. This agreement before the beginning of time between the Father and the Son that he would be delivered up for our sins. We will remember, as Romans chapter 4 tells us, that it was Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We will remember, as Romans chapter 8 tells us, that it was God the Father who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We will remember as Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, handed himself over, delivered himself. And on that note, when we think of that, of Christ giving himself up for me, there's another image that, that Paul's already addressed in this letter to the Corinthians. Um, but it has connections to this passage. Back in chapter 5, verses 6, 7, and 8, he'd written this. He said to the church, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Of course, there's a couple of connections there, not the least of which is that Christ is our Passover lamb. He is the sacrifice which saves us. And it was at the Passover celebration that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper that he said these words that Paul is quoting here in these verses. But there's also the, the unleavened bread, which in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you remember that chapter, it's a call for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But it was at that Passover meal, which was that, that annual reminder for the people of Israel that the Lord had redeemed his people from their slavery. It was here where Jesus took the bread and he instituted the covenant meal. 
Let's look at this covenant meal, verses 24 and 25. So he has taken the bread in verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I know I read this passage nearly every week, but do you notice in those two verses that there are actually four elements of the celebration? There's thanksgiving. He's given thanks. There's the eating of the bread. There's also a meal. Notice that he says, after supper. And then there's the drinking of the cup. Now, with regards to the meal itself, we're going to look more at this next week, but I want you to remember this church's sin. Right? Look up at verse 21. He says, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And then he's going to instruct them, and we'll get there next week, in verses 33 and 34. Just look down there. Verse 33, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Clearly, It was the proclamation of Christ's death from thankful hearts that was to be the focus. And so Paul essentially says to them, look, just eat your meals at home. Just eat your meals at home. That's not why you've come together. You haven't come together so that one might go hungry and another. You're not doing it like the Acts chapter 2 Christians were doing it, where they were sharing everything and have all, all things in common. They were being selfish, and so he says, you guys eat at home, but come to the Lord's table together with thankful hearts. Yet as we look at at Jesus' actions here, and just in these two verses, we should see them as the actions of, essentially, of any any Jewish host at a dinner. And so in taking the bread and and giving thanks, he's, he's saying a blessing for the bread. He's saying grace, some might say. Typically, this was done at the beginning of the meal. He breaks the bread, prays, thanks God for his provision, and then they would eat. But after giving thanks here, he goes off the Jewish script. Look at his, again, what we call his words of institution when he institutes the Lord's Supper. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's clearly pointing, to, uh, pointing us to his sacrifice for his people. Now, <clears throat> put on your thinking caps for just a moment. There are three passages of Scripture, probably more, but three that I want to read you this morning, that just, just reading them will help us draw connections to what is happening here. Okay? And I'm kind of going to read them in, I guess, in reverse order. The first is John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. So before I read that, let me read again. Jesus takes the bread, breaks it, and he says, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I am the bread of life, Jesus had said. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The second passage is one that I've already mentioned, actually. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Consider again, as Jesus says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us there celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I am the bread of life. This is my body which has been given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, sincerity and truth. And then the third is from God's instruction about the Passover itself. This one I want you to read. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 16. Or scroll to, however you do it. Deuteronomy chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of, the, uh, out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no, un- no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came up out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose. To make his name dwell in it, there you shall offer this Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it in the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. See, Jesus here in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 he, he takes the perpetual reminder of the Passover from the Jewish history, from Deuteronomy 16, from the book of Exodus. He takes the, the Jewish history of the Passover, God's instruction of the Passover, and he makes it about himself. And he says, he, he makes it a celebration to do in remembrance of me. Let me make the connection. Sometimes Christians get enamored with the religious customs of the Jews. We get giddy about bitter herbs. 
attending a Passover Seder. But let me tell you this. As Christians, we have no need to celebrate the, Christian, the, the Jewish Passover. We have no need to celebrate the Jewish Passover. Why would we want the shadow when we already have the substance? Christ, the true Passover lamb, the true manna from heaven. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He stops that meal, the Deuteronomy 16 meal, and he says, do it in remembrance of me. It is I who have delivered you from your bondage to sin. And so when we eat the bread, we remember his sacrifice for our sin. We remember that, that we have been redeemed. We remember that he has brought us from bondage to freedom in Christ. And so in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he interpreted it to be all about him as well. He's pointing to his sacrifice, but he's also, he's also pointing to his ratification of a new covenant. And so in ancient days, covenants were ratified with blood. So listen to Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 to 8, as the old covenant is ratified. So Exodus 24 says this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, that's the book of the law, by the way. And they said, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. They said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. But at the cross... At the cross, Jesus ratifies a new covenant. We are reminded of the promise of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke. I just read the covenant. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What happened to the blood? It was shed for us. The covenant was ratified. Those promises of Jeremiah 31 were ratified. And so this covenant meal, when we come and we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, 
It stands as a perpetual reminder and a renewal of the covenant. But it's a renewal on our part because we have failed to live up to the covenant agreement, but he has not. And so he graciously communes with us as we look through, as Spurgeon said, the spectacles of the bread and wine to see the Christ who died for our transgressions and remembers our sin no more. The Passover is a memorial meal of the Israelites' redemption from Egypt, but the Lord's Supper is a memorial of Christ himself who redeemed his people from the bondage of sin. And when believers gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord himself is living and present and reminding his own that he will return. And this is the announcement that we see here. Look at verse 26 in this announcement. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Only those who are participants in the new covenant will eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Only those who have been born again, those who have had their hearts of of stone ripped out of their flesh by our Savior and replaced with a heart of flesh, only those whose sins have been atoned for will eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And in doing this, not only do we participate in the blessings of the new covenant and and identify with Christ as his people, but these actions are also proclaiming Christ's death. This eating and this drinking announce to each other, to the church, to the world, that Christ gave his body, shed his blood as he died for the sins of his people, and that this death brought us into covenant, the covenant of grace and provided for our forgiveness, and so that we are his. So when we consider the cutting of the covenant, as they call it, the ratification of the covenant, When Moses took the blood and threw it on the altar and he took the blood and he threw it on the people, it gives new meaning to the phrase washed by the blood of the lamb, right? Because Christ is our Passover lamb whose sins were sacrificed for us. Christ's blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We've been brought into his people And if we are Christ, then we are people of Christ's covenant. And we are brought into being and we are assembled together through Christ, through his death. And so we eat and drink as a covenant community together and we reaffirm our position as God's people. I will be your God and you will be my people, he has declared. And so when we eat and drink because of the death of Christ, we are saying, You are our God, and we are your people. This means that our focus is all on Christ and what he has done, and we will continue to focus on him until he returns. We will continue to proclaim his death until he returns, and we eat of that marriage supper of the Lamb when it's not a cracker, piece of bread, and a little thing of juice. But it is, as Isaiah says, a feast with Christ at the head of the table saying, come, eat. Let's pray. Lord, we long for the day 
when we will eat the Lord's Supper with our Savior face to face. Lord, we long for the day when we will Eat rich food, as Isaiah says. Well-aged wine. We long for the day when we can sit at the Father's table. We long for the day when Christ will be with us as our God, physically, when we can see him, where there will be no more need for a son because he will light, the light of the world will be our light. And so we pray with John, come quickly, Lord. But Lord, until then, we pray that we would, hold, we would hold fast to the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Lord, we, we pray that we would hold fast to the redemption that comes only in Jesus Christ, that he has paid for our sins, And so we are clothed in his righteousness. And so, Father, we thank you for this bread. We thank you for the cup. We thank you for the body of Christ that was put to death for us. We thank you for the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins. And, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father on high where he always lives to intercede for us. Lord, may may we not forget these things, but hold fast to them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.